Let's hear God's word from the book of Revelation, chapter 12, beginning with verse 1 and reading through to the end of the chapter. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Revelation 12. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come to consider this portion of your word this morning, we pray that you would give to us the mind that has understanding, the mind that is able to see in these symbols in these visions, the spiritual reality that is behind what we observe with our physical eyes, that is behind what we experience on a day-to-day basis. Lord, we would have the curtain pulled aside and unveiled to us that we could see spiritual realities, not to satisfy our curiosity, not to alleviate our anxiety about tomorrow, but so that we would understand what our responsibility is today, and most of all, that we would understand who rules and who reigns, that we would understand the exaltation and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would count it a joy to suffer with him in order that afterwards we may also reign with him in eternity over all creatures. 
Again, we pray that he would be glorified by the preaching of your word in our hearts, in our lives, and before the world that sees who we are and what we do here. In Jesus' name, amen. For those who are joining us this morning but haven't been with us on previous Lord's Days, for the past five weeks now, this is the fifth week, we've been looking at the theme of two seeds in the Bible, taking our starting point from Genesis 3.15. Immediately after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, when the Lord God came to encounter them in the Garden of Eden and he asked them what they had done and He started with Adam, and Adam blamed Eve, and the Lord turned to Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. And then the Lord God did something very curious. He preached the gospel for the very first time it had ever been preached. And he preached it in the form of a curse pronounced on the serpent. And that curse heralded the reality of ongoing enmity between the woman and the serpent, between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. And that curse on the serpent was grace to the woman, was grace to humankind. On the one hand, it meant that Eve, who was the first to follow the serpent, was also the first to turn against him. She was recovered from her captivity, from her delusion. She was brought back again to stand on the right side, to stand with God over against the serpent. But we also saw that then the idea of the seed meant that there would be ongoing conflict that ultimately would culminate in one specific person. And we learned from Genesis chapter 4 how that conflict came to expression within the boundaries of the first family, how there was fratricide, there was murder of one brother by another. We saw how that enmity came to expression when an interloper into the royal house of David tried to stamp out the line of promise because God had made a covenant with David that one of his descendants would rule forever. But the wicked queen Athaliah tried to destroy all of the royal seed. And we saw that conflict again last week when in the paranoid delusions of an old and insane king, There was a homicide. There was a slaughter, a massacre of all the children, all the boys in Bethlehem and its surroundings in a vain attempt to crush out the life of the promised Redeemer, in a vain attempt to kill the Lord Jesus now that he had taken on true humanity, now that he was killable. Well, when you read that passage in Matthew chapter 2, and then you read Revelation chapter 12, you can see that Herod was the instrument of that great red dragon with seven heads lying in wait to devour the man-child, the male child, the moment he was born. So as we come to Revelation 12 today, we're really not departing from our overall theme. We are still talking about the conflict between the two seeds, and we're still talking about how that conflict comes to its maximum expression in the birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this is now described in a different way. We've seen that conflict described historically 
in terms of specific events that took place, and they were described as they could have appeared, as they did appear, to human observers at the time. But in the book of Revelation, the curtain that usually veils the spiritual reality behind our world is pulled aside. That's the idea of revelation, of apocalypse. It's of an unveiling. Now we get to see behind the curtain and we see the spiritual powers, the spiritual forces that are at work in the history that we read about or that we experience. Now at this point, I think we already had a pretty good idea of who that serpent way back in Genesis chapter 3 was. But if we had any doubts about that, John settles those doubts for us here in Revelation chapter 12. The great dragon was cast out, he says in verse 9. Now, listen what he's going to say about this great dragon, that serpent of old. What does he mean by that serpent of old? Well, he means the first serpent ever to be mentioned in the Bible. He means the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. How else have we learned to think about him? Well, we've learned to think about him as devil, as diabolos, as the accuser, the slanderer, the one who comes saying, for instance, nasty things about Job, the one who comes saying, oh, God, Job only serves God for mercenary reasons. Job only serves God because God has given Job everything his heart could wish. You start afflicting Job, you start taking away what he has, and he'll curse you to your face. That's the character of the dragon. Or Satan, the adversary, the one who opposes, the one who resists, the one who vainly and futilely resists the kingdom of God, the one who resists what is truly good and what is truly human. It's all the same person. He wears different hats. He appears in different forms. But now John has unveiled him. He's a snake. He's cunning. He's slippery. He slithers here and there. But don't underestimate him. He may be contemptible, and in many ways he absolutely is. But he's also a fierce dragon with seven heads. That means seven mouths to bite if it doesn't mean anything else. And this is a dragon who's capable of coughing up enough water that it could drown somebody. This is a sort of a primeval sea monster, among other things. This is the serpent unveiled. Why is he red? You might wonder about that detail. Was it important to tell us that this is not a green dragon, this is not a blue dragon, this is a red dragon? Yes, I think that highlights his murderous character, which we've seen in Cain, which we've seen in Athaliah, which we've seen in Herod, and which has not changed up until now. So here is the dragon. And what is his goal? Well, his goal is to devour the male child. Now, who is this male child? Well, we're told that in the allusion to Psalm 2. Revelation 12, verse 5 says that the woman bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. You might recognize that. That comes from Psalm 2. God is going to set his king, his anointed king, on his holy hill of Zion. He'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. He'll dash them in pieces with a potter's vessel. 
one time a very biblical boy mentioned that he'd killed a spider and he said that he dashed it in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's how you can tell when children are growing up with some Bible knowledge. They come up with things like that. But this is with reference to Christ. He's going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who is he? He's God's appointed king. He's the seed of David. He's the seed of the woman. Now, the way Revelation tells the story, the serpent is lying in wait to devour this child as soon as he's born, but he doesn't succeed. It says her child was caught up to God in his throne. Now, of course, we know there was more to the story than that. First, the child had to flee into Egypt or he would have been killed. And then the child lived a life of perfect holiness. And then the child faced substantial opposition during his earthly life and ministry to the degree that people were plotting to kill him quite a lot. And ultimately, that plot was carried out and it succeeded. So you might wonder how in the world can Revelation tell this story where the male child is killed, where he's nailed to a cross? How could it just skip over all of that? Because the important thing was the victory. Yes, Jesus was killed. He was crucified. He was buried and laid in a tomb, but he didn't stay there. He rose again and he ascended into heaven. So Revelation retells that with the emphasis on victory. And so the serpent was defeated. The serpent was disappointed. He had this plan to eliminate the seed of the woman and the plan did not work. He crushed the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman crushed his head. Now, you might also be wondering, who is this woman who's dressed in the sun, standing on the moon, and garlanded with stars? Perhaps you recognize the allusion to Joseph's dream where sun, moon, and stars bowed down to him. This is an image of the people of God. Where did Christ come from? Well, he was born from among the people of God. Of course, that narrowed down to one specific young woman, but this passage is not primarily about Mary. Mary was never given the wings of an eagle to fly into the wilderness. This is about the people of God, the corporate group from which Christ emerges and which he sustains and protects. So what is this story about? Well, the story is about the birth of Christ. You see everything leading up to it. Here's this woman, and she's groaning. She's suffering. She's travailing. Giving birth is not easy. And moreover, there's this awful dragon lying in wait. This part of the vision, it's kind of like a nightmare. How would you feel if you're giving birth And there's a Komodo dragon or something like it waiting to gobble up your child the moment it's born. You talk about stress. But the child was delivered. He was delivered in terms of being brought forth, in terms of being born. But he was also delivered from the serpent's machinations. He ascended up on high. He was caught up to God. Now that did not make the serpent happy. So the serpent, when he cannot attack Christ, when Christ is placed out of his reach, what does he do? He attacks the church, the people of God. But the woman is protected. 
She's carried into the wilderness on eagle's wings. She's nourished or sustained or fed there for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years if you use a 30-day calendar. If, all, if you have 12 months and every month has 30 days, that's also the reference of time, times, and half a time. And when the devil can't overcome the church, when the church as an organism is protected, is defended, is delivered, well, then he goes after individual believers. The dragon was enraged with the woman, verse 17 says, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who are the offspring of the church? Who are the sons and daughters of this woman clothed with the sun? Well, it's those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's faithful believers who walk with the Lord. Now, what is the point of all of this? Well, there's uh, lots of things that could be said, and we can't explain all 17 verses of Revelation chapter 12 this morning. And of course, it's connected with what comes next in chapter 13. We can't explain it all, but there are some big things that we can draw from this. One, we can draw from this that the decisive conflict between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent seed and the woman seed, has already taken place. What was the dragon's big attempt? What was his main endeavor? What was, if you want to put it in these terms, what was his one shot at avoiding the curse? Well, it was crushing Christ. Did he succeed in that? No. The male child was born and was caught up to heaven. The devil failed. The main victory, the decisive victory, has already been won. And it wasn't won by me, and it wasn't won by you, and it wasn't won by the church. It was won by Christ. We need to understand that. We need not to give ourselves too much credit in spiritual warfare. We have a battle to fight, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But the decisive victory has already been accomplished. Christ has come. Christ was not destroyed by the serpent. Christ overcame. That's the only reason there's any hope for us to overcome. If it were not for the victory of Christ, of course, our defeat would be guaranteed. The devil is here compared to a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Peter talks about him as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. What are you going to do with that kind of an adversary? Well, left to your own devices, you're going to be defeated. You're going to be taken captive. You're going to be destroyed. If you're not deceived, you will be killed. Remember, those are the dragons. Those are the serpents. Two weapons. He has two things he does. He lies and he murders. If he can't deceive you by his lies, well, then he kills you. Those are his options. That's what he's got. And apart from the victory of Christ, he would be successful with all of us. He would defeat us all. You cannot stand against the devil in your own strength, by your own wisdom. But the Bible also says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? Why in the world would the devil ever run away from us? Because he has already been defeated. Because Christ is victorious, because none of the seven heads were able to sink their teeth into the male child, but he trampled on them all. 
This is a wonderful message of victory. The male child was born and the male child triumphed. Now, we also need to understand, though, the fact that the decisive victory has been won does not mean that the devil has given up. You have that in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. The dragon has been cast out. But what comes next? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. What was the effect on Satan of Christ overcoming? It wasn't to make him give up. It wasn't to make him sit down in despair. It was to make him madder than ever. Well, that anger is vented towards the church. The decisive victory of Christ does not mean that there's no struggle, that there's no temptation, that there's nothing happening. That's why Peter says that the devil is actively walking about, seeking whom he may devour. He has not stopped. He has not quit. The decisive battle has been won, but there is still ongoing conflict We had that in our catechism for this morning. Question and answer 127 says, besides our deadly enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh assail us without ceasing. Where is there rest from the spiritual war? Well, there's rest in heaven. That's what it says. Rejoice, O heavens, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth. While we're in this life, We have our warfare to engage in. Christ has won, so we can fight. There's a meaning to fighting. There's a reason to fighting. There's hope in fighting. There's even confidence in fighting. But all of that goes along with a need to fight. We're not going to avoid the spiritual war. But there is very good news. The woman was protected. She did not starve. She was not devoured. She was not drowned. All of the different attacks that the dragon launched against her were defeated. He did not triumph. To put it in terms of the Lord Jesus' own words from Matthew, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. We can be quite confident. We can be quite sure That since Christ has won, the community in which he was born, the people with whom he identifies will not be overcome. But then you can notice that although the devil is frustrated with regard to Christ, with regard to the church as a whole, he still doesn't stop. The dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, with individual believers. And the rubber meets the road here, doesn't it? Who are the remnant? Well, that's us. Who is the devil at war with now? Well, he's at war with you. That's the reality. He's a sworn enemy to your soul. Again, he continues to use these same weapons. He uses the weapons of lies. He tries to get you to believe what is not true. He tries to get you to believe that God's law is against you. He tries to get you to believe that obedience to God's law is a crushing burden that will ruin everything. When in fact, it's your true joy and your true freedom. 
He tries to get you to believe that there will be some kind of satisfaction, some kind of contentment in sin, when the reality is that sin and misery are inextricably linked. He tries to get you to believe that God is some harsh taskmaster just waiting for an excuse to smite you. He tries to get you to believe that it's all over with, that you'll never make any headway against temptation, that you'll never be any holier than you are right now. He tries to get you to believe that there's no point in even trying. You've already been defeated. You know what that is? That's projection. He's already been defeated. But he tries to infect you with that despair so that you'll give up. Well, if he can't deceive you, if he can't get you to listen to his lies, then he'll try to intimidate you. He'll try to scare you. He'll make you think that persecution is coming. Well, it may be coming. The Bible tells us that persecution comes. It comes in waves. It comes and goes. But it does come. But it's not a reason to give up. It's not a reason to be scared. It's not a reason to back down. And if he can't intimidate you, well, he'll hurt you if he's able to. He'll take away your livelihood. He'll throw you in prison. He'll have you killed. You can read about that in Revelation. There was Antipas, a faithful witness, who was killed. These are his weapons. This is the warfare. But what is it? It's the dying gasp. It's the furious writhing of a serpent that has already been crushed. We can stand. We can outlast him. How does anyone overcome the serpent? By the blood of the lamb. Our sins are forgiven. So what can he accuse us of? Here's this slanderer who loves to tell lies about people. Here's this slanderer who loves to throw our imperfections in our face, who would love to tell God all about everything we do wrong. He can't say a word. The blood of Christ fully answers all of it. We overcome because our sins are forgiven. They're washed away in the blood of the Lamb. We overcome By the word of their testimony. What does that mean? Does that mean that we live so blamelessly there's nothing bad to say about us? Well, I wish, but that's not usually the case. No, this is the testimony of Jesus. This is the profession of the gospel. This is the reality that we acknowledge him to be our savior. How do they overcome? They overcome because they did not love their lives to the death. Why was that? Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, they found something that is better than this earthly life. They found a reason to live. They found something worth dying for as well as worth living for. If I'm saying all of this about the Lord Jesus and you're like, "Uh uh-uh, no way, that makes no sense at all. Let me just suggest to you that you don't really know who he is. If you knew the Lord Jesus, if you understood the identity of this male child who was born and was caught up to heaven, loving him would make sense. What doesn't make sense is that we don't love him anymore. That's the hard part to explain. Finding in Christ a reason to live, finding in Christ a reason to live that is worth laying down your life for it. That part is absolutely logical once you know who Jesus is. Not living for him, serving him so half-heartedly That's the part that is just weird. That's the part that's inexplicable. Christ was truly born. He did come forth. He arose out of Israel in fulfillment of all of God's promises. He crushed the serpent. He ascended into heaven. 
And now joined to him with the testimony of Jesus. We also can be conquerors in this war. We do have to fight. But you remember again what Paul said to the Romans. The God of peace will shortly bruise Satan under your feet. The good news of the gospel this morning is that we are included in the victory of Christ. That Christ's victory over the serpent is enacted again in us. We shall triumph. We shall overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Amen.